Yeah, good to see you, whether you're here in the room or you're online. Glad you're here today. I'm Sandy Knutson, a member of the volunteer preaching team here at River Heights. And this is the second week of our series about suburban idols. You don't have to own a house in the suburbs for these messages to apply to you. We're talking about how in our modern, everyday lives, there are still things we're tempted to put ahead of God. We want God first and foremost in every area of our life. And we tend to get tripped up in certain areas or find some things more challenging. And today, I actually mean things. I'm talking this morning about our stuff, material possessions. And I spent a large portion of my life without a TV, and maybe that's why I still notice how much airtime stuff gets. When I flip on a TV, the content reflects how much we Americans focus on what we own. There's commercials, but even the shows. We have a shopping channel and a whole HGTV lineup about homes and yards. And then I think about shows like Antiques Roadshow, where people hope their old things turn out to be priceless treasures. The show Storage Wars features people bidding on unopened storage lockers because they want the stuff inside. At a slightly different point on the spectrum is Hoarders, which is all about interventions for people who cannot let go of anything. You can watch Marie Kondo's show, Tidying Up, about only keeping the items that bring you joy. And you can follow The Minimalists and own less than 100 items total. So whether we're counting our stuff as uber important or trying to figure out how to live with less of it, that's a lot of attention on possessions. I got a refresh on my perspective about stuff this last January. As part of my seminary studies, I was able to go on a travel course to Tanzania that's a country near Kenya in Africa, and that trip brought me face-to-face -face with the reality of wealth. So I'd taken a tr mission trip to Haiti in 2011, and I'd seen poverty there. Families of eight living in a shanty that a strong wind could have blown over. And Tanzania wasn't like that. And in some ways, that difference made it worse. In Haiti, it felt like people had nothing at all. In Tanzania, my hosts had food to eat, they had houses to live in, they were doing okay in some ways, but there was still a huge contrast with the lifestyle we're used to in America. The starkest contrast I noticed was in lodging. So for most of a week, my classmates and I stayed at a Lutheran guest house. The beds weren't plush and there wasn't central air, but there were ceiling fans and screened windows to create a breeze. Usually the Wi-Fi didn't work, but there was electricity consistently, and the bathroom had normal Western fixtures. It felt like a budget American motel. The week we were staying there, we were at a conference with, American, with some local pastors. The pastors taught us about doing ministry in their culture. They fed us well, showed us around sightseeing, took time to get to know us, and were just incredibly gracious hosts. Often, while well, they were still juggling phone calls and responsibilities for their home churches. Then, for one night after that conference, my classmates and I ended up staying at a certain hotel. I'm not sure the bedding had been washed. I didn't even want to touch it, much less sleep on it. It was unclear which switch was supposed to control the lights, but at one point, all the lights went out and just plunged into darkness. In the bathroom, there was a shower head on the wall, so if I stood next to the toilet, got everything soaking wet, I could get shiveringly clean under cold water. I was quite happy to leave the next day. I could have been happy to leave as soon as I walked in. But what challenged me was this. While I hated the one night I had to stay at that hotel, 
I knew that those lovely pastors had stayed there all that previous week. It was a comparatively nice hotel by local standards. So that was where the pastors had stayed without complaint for a week, and I could hardly stand it for a night. And I came back from that trip wrestling with what I'd seen. A few of my classmates had commented on the poverty, and I didn't see it as poverty. With Haiti in my mind, I saw that Tanzania was comparatively well off, but I still saw how absurdly much better off I was and how much I still take for granted living in the US. It felt completely unfair. And I was halfway ready to sell all my stuff and move to a shanty myself, as though that would fix anything. I already tend toward minimalism and take frequent trips to thrift shops to drop off things I'd been excited to get a year or two previously. My experience in Tanzania felt like pouring gasoline on that impulse. Even comparatively well-off Tanzanians had so little, and as an American, I had so ridiculously much. If you've taken a mission trip or traveled in rougher areas, maybe you know this feeling. But there was another feeling I encountered repeatedly on this trip. The trip to Tanzania was just over two weeks long. I wasn't really sure what all I would need. So I packed a large duffel bag with all these potentially useful things, everything from aloe vera gel to a sewing kit. Anyone in the room like to pack heavy? End up with five bags just for a day trip? So on this trip, I had packed heavy. I didn't know what would happen, so I wanted to be prepared, have what I needed. But then several times on this trip, we went on overnight excursions, and each time we were told only to bring a small bag with what we needed. We didn't have enough room to bring our actual luggage. Oh man, I hated that. My big bag of stuff felt like security. I already had to do with a Wi-Fi or cell service. I only spoke a few words of the language. That floppy slate blue duffel bag full of stuff felt like all I had. I wanted to have my spare clothes and my big bottle of sunscreen. And in reality, having a small bag usually worked out fine. But once or twice I didn't have something I borrowed from someone else or made do without. Nothing horrible happened. But those two warring feelings, on the one hand that I ought to get rid of everything I owned like Mother Teresa, and on the other like my stuff was so critically important, got me thinking about how stuff can be an idol. Both these two extremes put too much emphasis on things as though having the right amount or the right kind of stuff is most important in life. We're pretty quick to point fingers at someone who acts like they cannot live without the latest Gucci handbag or whatever. But this attitude of acting as though stuff will save us creeps into our lives in many subtler ways. Maybe it's feeling like having stuff is security, like I did with my luggage. Maybe it's feeling like having stuff makes people like you. For example, if your house is the one with the pool where you can invite everyone over. Or maybe it's minimalist thinking that if you reduce down to only the essentials, you'd be happy and finally have peace in your life. The habits of getting more stuff, keeping less stuff, or buying different stuff all reflect our beliefs about stuff. If you believe picking up pasta and sauce from the grocery store means you'll have a quick meal, it's a super realistic belief. There's no problem with that mindset. If you secretly believe that cooking this particular pasta dish is going to make your day feel meaningful and get rid of your sadness, that's where the mindset might become a problem and you're likely to end up disappointed. Material possessions are far from evil. They're really nice to have, actually. But fundamentally, there's no quantity of them that can give you security 
approval, belonging, joy, or peace. The problem is not the amount or the quality. It's that you're trying to get something from possessions that they cannot provide, period. Stuff cannot fix your life. Satisfaction derived from stuff rarely lasts more than a few minutes. I've talked long enough. It's probably time to bring in some scripture. So I'd like to read you a slightly longer chunk of text from Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. This is Jesus speaking in what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, Don't store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters. If you'll hate one and love the other, you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. This is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and tomorrow are thrown into the fire, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Let me read that last verse again, and I'll read the New King James Version. The wording might be a little more familiar. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. When we're at our best, our focus is where it's made to be, on the kingdom or reign of God and living rightly. Stuff is a temporary necessity, sometimes just a bonus. All our things are temporary. You heard that in this passage, right? Moths, rust, and thieves represent a whole host of ways the things we hold on to slip away from us. On a large scale, natural disasters wipe out whole homes or cities of stuff. On a way smaller scale, bananas turn brown and mushy. With technology, we have planned obsolescence to make a $1,000 smartphone last only a few years, even if you don't break the screen. If you're in an older generation, you might have tapes or floppy disks that you don't even have a device to play anymore. None of our stuff will last. And even if something lasts a long time, we eventually separate from our stuff. There's a joke, and theology I don't agree with, but it's a joke, it's still funny of how man died, and he was meeting St. Peter at the pearly gates. The man asked if he could please, please go back and get one thing to bring with him into heaven. St. Peter hemmed and hawed. He decided to allow it for once. And after a while, the man came back to the gate to enter heaven. Out of curiosity, St. Peter asked, 
what it was that the man had been so eager to go back and get. The man, slightly reluctantly, opened the suitcase he'd lugged back and revealed gold bars. St. Peter rocked back on his heels in laughter and asked, paving brick? Whatever did you want that for? <laughs> Jokes aside, when we die, our stuff doesn't come with us. A bumper sticker I've seen says that he who dies with the most toys still dies. No amount of money or wealth in the world can prevent us from eventually dying. We can use and enjoy things for whatever time we have them, but the time will not be forever. And we can do better than temporary, friends. We can store up treasures in heaven and live a life now that aims toward eternity. We worship a God who was around before the wheel was invented, before the first loaf of bread was baked, and long before the printing press. This God who is from everlasting to everlasting, as the Psalms say. This God offers us a secure, eternal future. Jesus won it for us. The Apostle Paul wrote, and I'll use the NIV translation here. That's the wording that was familiar to me. It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So as children of God, we have an inheritance that will last forever. The kingdom of God is built to last, and we stake a claim for that kingdom now in our own lives. I admit, it's harder to measure treasures in heaven than it is to see how many books or collectibles line your shelves, but there is no typhoon that can wipe out the reign of God, and no bank collapse that can endanger anything you invest in what God is doing in the world. You're going to lose this stuff anyway, so why not use it for something that will last? Wealth is a poor master, but it can be a useful tool if we remember it's temporary. We can make better choices for how to invest. And it's between you and God to work out exactly how this looks for you. Maybe it means not buying a fine item and instead giving to charity or church. Maybe for you it's spending less time looking at the stock market or organizing storage and more time reading the Bible. My encouragement is to be attentive to how you think and feel about temporary things to how, compared to how you think and feel about God. If the Holy Spirit highlights a change you can make, then listen. We can trust when God asks us to make even a difficult change because God wants what is truly, deeply good in our lives. I enjoy a poetic passage from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. So let me share that with you. And the I in these verses is God, is saying, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me, and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, and you will find life. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. I'll give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. Jumping down a little to verse 10. The rain and the snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. You will live in joy and peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Where once there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. 
These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. They will be an everlasting sign of his power and love. And that passage sounds so much more bountiful than anything money can buy. And I hear in this passage something else I heard in the Sermon on the Mount, too. God is ultimately the provider behind every single thing we see and have. God feeds the birds, and God is the one who feeds us. God clothes the lilies, and God can make sure we have clothes on our back, even when we're not focusing all our energy on our possessions. Our worries don't cause the stuff we want to spontaneously spring into being. So instead of focusing on the stuff, focus on the creator of all things. Maybe this was a little easier to remember before we had an Amazon ferry dropping packages of everything we could ever think to want on our doorsteps, back when more people were farmers. Farmers see that no matter how hard they work, a good harvest depends on sun and rain and fundamentally on God. And I'm glad to say our God is generous and likes to provide for people, even not especially good people. I'm not very good at remembering to say grace before I eat, but that practice of saying grace takes a tangible thing like food and makes it a reminder to turn and thank the God who gave it to us. Think, too, about how different it feels to worry about all the bills that will come due versus to see what God has set before you and turn in thanksgiving. Noticing how we feel in the course of a day can help tell where our hearts are at. In Psalm 65, the psalm writer thanks and praises God like this. You take care of the earth and water it, making it rich and fertile. The river of God has plenty of water, and it provides a bountiful harvest of grain. For you have ordered it so. You drench the plowed grounds with rain, melting the clods and leveling the ridges. You soften the earth with showers and bless its abundance crops. You crown the year with a bountiful harvest. Even the hard pathways overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness become a lush pasture, and the hillsides blossom with joy. The meadows are clothed with flocks of sheep, and the valleys are carpeted with, joy, with grain. They all shout and sing for joy. It all just feels so joyful. I love how this writer sees the material things, water, grain, sheep, and then sees God behind those things. Can you see like that? Society tells us we've earned our stuff and deserve to enjoy it. And it may be true that you've earned what you have, at least I hope you didn't steal it, but it's true at a deeper level that God gave us the capabilities and capacity to earn things. God is the only one who creates from nothing, and all the stuff we see and use and enjoy is really God's. It's not actually just mine for me to do whatever I want with. I'm just a steward, entrusted to care for certain things for whatever time I have them. So a moment ago, I highlighted being attentive to the Holy Spirit in this area. The things are God's, so it makes sense to listen to God on how to spend and use them. Then our focus is on the right thing, God, and how to be a faithful steward, instead of being focused on stuff as a way to satisfy ourselves. The wisdom literature of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes has much to say about how to live in poverty and in wealth with whatever set of stuff you have now. I like a proverb attributed to a goer who prays this, Oh God, I beg two favors from you. Let me have them before I die. First, help me never to tell a lie. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? 
And if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. So listen to Agur. He understood that it's not about getting all that you can and having less isn't a solution to everything either. He was focused on what would help him honor God in his life. Neither poverty nor riches can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what matters. Whether your default tendency is to be a shopaholic or hoarder or a penny pincher or a minimalist or anywhere in between. Look deeper than the temporary stuff. Look at how you can honor the Lord with your stuff in every area of your life. Listen to the Apostle Paul, too. He wrote to the Corinthian church and asked, Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. There's nothing wrong with wanting to earn something nice for yourself, but don't settle for a temporary reward, one that moths and rust can destroy or a thief can steal. Instead, discipline yourself to look to the God who made it all and seek first the kingdom of God, where you can earn an eternal prize. And if you aren't sure what that looks like, but something stirred up in you while I've been talking, this is an invitation. Pray about it. Talk to friends who follow Jesus and think about what it might mean for your life. I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and I'll invite prayer team members to make their way forward to be available. I'd like as many of you who are able to stand, and I'm going to pray for us. Generous God, thank you for the blessings around us, for the world and the beautiful ways you have provided for us, for the things you've entrusted to us to take care of for a time. Help us to look beyond just the things right in front of our faces, to look at your kingdom and the love you have shown us. See that and help us to use our lives, use the things around us to point back to you and help us just to be focused on you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. So here are three tips for the week. Read. Read about how the earliest church treated possessions in Acts 2, 44 through 47. I did not include this one in the sermon, so this is bonus content. You get to go read yourself. This week, when you sit down to a meal, try thanking God for it. That's your pray tip. Say grace. Some of you might do this all the time, and this is a super easy tip for you. For others of us, this is still a new practice that it's a challenge to remember. But it's still good to just start training our minds to see stuff and then look beyond it to the creator and provider. Then do. I challenge you this week to find something you own, something that has value to you and would have value to another person, and give it away. It could be something small, but giving away things that we value is a reminder that our stuff isn't forever and doesn't rule us. So now is our time to respond to God. You can praise God by singing worship. You can come get prayer. I especially invite you to come receive prayer if you feel like your relationship with material possessions has been a struggle. If stuff has too much of a hold on you and you feel trapped, come up and we can pray with you for freedom. Whichever way you respond, the worship team will lead us from here and let us know when the service is over. I'll be by the Welcome Center. We'd love to say hello when you go that way. Thank you, Sandy. So the next song that we're going to sing is uh, one we've done a couple of times. It's called You Have Our Yes. And as this whole conversation.